Welcome to the SoCal Hymns Podcast. I am Sarah Richardson, and today we are featuring a conversation with Vicki Shillington on how happiness in the workplace creates a formula for attracting and retaining talent in the digital era. As a talent and organizational development executive, Vicki has over 20 years of experience providing executive coaching and organization transformation leadership, driving productivity improvements through engaged employees. Through the lens of positive psychology, Vicki guides organizations, teams, and individuals to grow, succeed, and thrive. While she works across a variety of functions, she's particularly passionate about transforming technology and digital organizations. In her current role, her responsibilities include working closely with executives across the organization, as well as the HR team to reinvent the employee experience. Previously, Vicki led North Highland's global human capital and change management practice, consisting of practitioners across the US and UK. Vicki was responsible for building a practice and leading engagements focused largely on organization transformation and employee experience. Prior to North Highland, Vicki worked at Deloitte Consulting, Arthur Anderson, and IBM, consulting to public and private sector organizations going through significant change across Europe, South Africa, and the U.S. Vicki is a certified facilitator in a number of leadership programs. She's often called on to speak internationally on secrets to transforming organizations successfully and reinventing an inspiring employee experience. Vicki is the proud recipient of the Women Leader in Consulting Award. Vicki, it is such a pleasure to have you in the studio with us today. Thank you for being here. I want to start by asking your perspective on the fact that you have witnessed workforce culture uh, on three different continents in five industries, education, entertainment, healthcare, finance, retail. What stands out to you as a differentiator or who's, where is this happening the best that you have seen thus far? Uh, you know, Sarah, it's an absolute pleasure to be here, but no industry is getting it right. Uh, it's such a difficult thing to nail on the head because it's all about the employees and the leaders and the system that makes them successful or not. So there are some companies that are putting some pretty cool things in place that allow employees to be successful. And it usually starts with leaders and the leadership behaviors and how they role model what they do, which then allows the employees to do it right as well. But there's no magic answer, sadly. There's just a number of things you can put in place to make it a great place to work. So how important is it to use culture to attract and retain employees? And what do you think see today as something that is what people are going after in an organization from a cultural perspective? You know, what's pretty cool in this era is that 31% of HR leaders recognize that the organizational cultures that they have are not what's going to attract prospective employees. And employees have a voice like they never had before. We have a glass door. We have all these tools that just were not available for them to have a voice before. And so organizations assumed that employees needed to be there. And they treated them like cogs in the system and managers are the zookeepers and workers the daily grind. And employees now have a voice and they expect to be heard and they are able to be heard. And it needs to be a place where they want to work, not just where they have to work. And so the culture becomes so important, and it's not the values you put on the wall. It's what behaviors are manifested day to day. If a new employee walks in the building and what they see is not what the values are on the wall, that employment contract is broken from the second they walk in 
and they start to feel disengaged. It's not what they thought they signed up to. And that happens the moment they walk in the door on day one. And it has to start from there. Is there a recovery window? I mean, they walk in the door the first week, they see something they don't like, et cetera. Like, what is that window of opportunity for recovery? Or is it really, is it lost from the get-go? You know, I describe it like a first date. You know, if you go on your first date and it's a bad experience, you know, sure you can recover, but it's probably an eight to one in terms of effort. The amount of effort you have to put in to rebuild and be given that chance takes a lot of active effort. And I would say it's probably eight times the proportion of effort to what went wrong, um, at, you know, at the minimum. So, yes, it can be recovered, but it's going to be just a very hard battle because once you've lost trust and belief and the person doesn't believe that what they thought they were signing up for is what they get, it's a very, very hard journey to to switch. And what I find is a lot of recruiters and hiring managers aren't very clear about what they're really looking for. They know they just want to get somebody in with really good technical chops. And so they go out and they hire those skills, but they're not really looking for you know, what is the organizational culture? What's the department culture? What's the team culture? Because you've got all these different levels of culture. And the the subculture of a team is where an individual is going to thrive or not. Is that team more decisive and steady? Or are they more freeform and, and, and excited about new things? And those types of things really, they, they really impact how successful an individual is going to be in a, a team. And unless you know that and get that right person for that fit, and then create an incredible experience from the moment they walk in the door to how they set themselves up in terms of their initial first day, meeting their colleagues, their whole onboarding experience in such a way that they can be as productive as quickly as possible. It can be a pretty uh, dismal experience for a number of employees. So organizational transformation takes 18 to 24 months, you know, from my experiences to really to get in there to take root and to make a change. How do you create an environment that's on that, you know, north wind to change things while you still have your resident culture in place. An organization can say, we're ready to do something different. We're ready to to bring a Vicky in to teach us how to recruit, retrain, and make a happiness part of our culture. When you start that journey, how do you start to, you know, build that new team with the existing team there? Because it's a lot harder, I would believe, to sway the teammates who have already been there for a long time versus to hire in with those expectations? You know, Sarah, that's such a great question because it's almost like it's two parallel tracks. So I think there's something that focuses in on, you know, what's the new, what's what's not working today and how do we figure out, how do we attract and retain great individuals? And that starts with what is the vision of what you need to look like in terms of that culture and employee experience? And then looking at everything from those touch points that an employee will experience through their life cycle and just turning it on its head so it's very appealing. But in parallel, I think what you can do is engage the existing workforce in a pretty engaging way by getting them involved in a number of initiatives that are led by them. And for instance, what I mean by that is if you have your values on the wall, can that be looked at by the team level to be able to understand for each team, how does that manifest itself? What does that look like? What are the do's and don'ts? What do they need from other teams? What do they need from the wider organization? And putting in a mechanism, almost like a change champion network, where they can filter up the issues that are holding them back, the barriers, and then systematically finding ways to address that. Is it something organizations can do on their own? Or is it something that you believe that they really need help 
understanding on how to achieve because you can talk about changing organizational, you know, results, et cetera, but to really be deliberate about that change effort, it's not something you can just create. I mean, you're almost done with a master's in positive psychology and that journey alone is like, wow, there's so many facets to making this work well and to doing it right. What does it take for an organization to do that? Do they really have to hire someone to help them do it? Or what kind of training would you recommend that a team takes on before they try to make a change like this? That question has so many fabulous dynamics to it. You know, there is definitely something about being guided along the journey. So what you find in organizations is people who've either been there a long time, so they don't really know a different way of doing things. They don't know a different way of leading or behaving. Um, or you have some new people who've come on board who have a different way and they know how things could be different. But for some reason, that organization, their culture is holding them back. And HR often, as much as they have the ambitions and desires to help and make it a great place to work, a lot of their focus tends to be on compliance and making sure that everything's set up from an HR perspective so that you've got the basics covered from a regulatory and administrative perspective, which is very, very important. But that also means that they don't necessarily have the bandwidth and the leadership will to solve for those types of problems. What I found is when organizations try and do this themselves and limp along, they may or may not get there. It's, it's, it's a struggle. You can get there a lot quicker when you've got somebody architecting the journey and working with the groups and the leaders and the managers and, and providing that guidance of just a different way of thinking about things, giving them a common language, a common mindset, a common framework in order to understand that journey and what steps to take and what are the things that are going to trip them up that they can collectively work through and seeing it holistically. It's very hard for most departments to see the the whole challenge where what I found, one of my superpowers is being able to see the dots that organizationally, leadership level, employee level, what are those things that are holding the whole thing back and how do you start that journey? In most organizations, you're going to find that there are, are values uh, stemming from accountability and innovation and honesty, et cetera. Have you seen any organization with happiness as part of their values? And is that something that will actually resonate as a recruiting tool and something that's based on the longevity of, of having retention of teammates over time? I, uh, I'm fascinated by this concept of happiness because it either turns executives off because they feel like it's too fluffy, or you have um, the more evolved and enlightened who realize it's not the Mary Poppins happy-go-lucky. It's the what does it take to lead a life that is fulfilling and how do you flourish and how do you have a life of meaning and purpose? And that actually is the definition of happiness uh, from a lot of the research. So it's not this wishful thinking and just ignoring all the things that are broken around you. It's actually figuring out how to create something that is lasting and meaningful and engaging, deeply, deeply engaging. And I call myself a chief happiness officer because I'm at intersection of HR and the leaders in the workforce, and I'm there to inspire and create an environment where people love to work. And when I made up that title a bunch of years ago, there were only a handful of those titles on LinkedIn. 
I recently saw a survey and over 5,000 of them now on LinkedIn. And when I meet up with individuals in the industry, most are pretty fascinated by that title. It brings a smile to their face. They're curious. They want to understand more. They realize there's something deeper. So I would say we're still at at the cutting edge of what that looks like. And I have so much data from an ROI perspective that CFOs love around the real hard and fast turnaround you get from an ROI perspective. Uh, Jacob Morgan in his best-selling book, The Experience Advantage, describes how you can get 4.4 times the profit by having engaged and happy people at work. And that, that translates to millions of dollars. And you can just look at it from the perspective of recruitment. You know, if you have your new hires coming in, being disengaged, leaving within the first year, it's going to cost at least one and a half to two times annual salary to replace them. If you think about the impact to the teams they're working in, they say that every time you change a person or a manager in a team, it results in 78% of stress for the colleagues, which then impacts productivity. So these are some things that sort of the old world executives don't like to recognize because they don't see it in terms of revenue. But those that intrinsically are just doing it well and understand the value of the employee experience and have remarkably good performance from a financial perspective year on year, Southwest is a great example, know that if you have happy employees, you're going to have a successful outcome. They will rally around you and they will do whatever it takes to get you through whatever you're going through. You know, today it's uh, interesting because you see that people will have something like 14 jobs before they turn 38, new graduates. We talk about retaining and, and attracting uh, quality talent in the digital era, even if we create this land of happiness for them to come to work every day, is there anything to say that they're going to want to stay more than three years? And, and how do we create that environment for them as well? That world, I think, has passed, you know, so there, there definitely is um, a study out there right now for a lot of the tech giants um, in the industry, the Facebooks, the Googles, the Apples, the Microsofts. And the typical tenure there is a couple years. You know, people come and go within a couple years. And um, it's just the reality of the the market and the industry that we live in right now and the speed of change that's happening. On the upside, it's pretty exciting because people are experiencing different cultures, learning new tools and seeing different ways of doing things. On the downside, the, the knowledge transfer and the inherent knowledge that walks out the door um, every time somebody moves on is pretty costly, to be honest. And so those organizations that get the basics right and create a great employee experience will retain people longer. There's no question about it. The, the science is out there. However, where I'm fascinated in the world of positive psychology is, as, a, as it applies to organizations, there's a specific discipline called positive organizational psychology and positive organizational scholarship, which is looking at things like energy networks. So how does my energy affect you? Do I energize you or do I de-energize you? Now, the very fact that there's a survey out there probably means I'm going to be a little bit more self-aware if I understand my energy levels and how I impact you, which might mean I change my behaviors because most people don't realize the impact they're having on others. They say that 100% of people feel like they're self-aware and probably only 20% actually are when they hear things from their colleagues or their managers or uh, their team. Most people intuitively know that something like that is going on, but they've never really heard that data because we also shy at giving each other real constructive 
uh, ideas of how we can be better. And so things like energy networks, um, helping people create a high energy place to work where they can do interesting work and thrive, helping them create deep, meaningful connections. High quality connections is one of the key signals of leading a meaningful and high flourishing life. Those that age well tend to have a lot of high quality connections in their life. If you can do that at work, um, you're more likely to stay as well. And then having interesting work, so finding how to rotate your talent through different roles. There's a whole new concept to uh, job design, which is not just figuring out what work needs to get done, but how do you play to people's strengths? How do you allow them to focus on the thing that's most engaging to them? If they work best in the mornings, how do you allow that to happen um, so that they're at their best at the time that works for them? And how do you help them with things that they don't love as much to be able to give that to other people while getting rid of any of the organizational barriers and things that just are a drain on their energy? So most of our listeners are in the healthcare industry, and healthcare's got about a 20% turnover rate, and physician burnout is a real thing. Um, the fast pace of technology makes our employees highly sought after, so there's a lot of competition out there. When you talk about creating those meaningful relationships and, and, and using happiness potentially to stave off some of the burnout and the desire to be in an organization, what does that look like to you? I think healthcare is such a fascinating industry to tackle something like employee uh, happiness because patient care is at the center of the whole healthcare world. Uh, the bedside manner, creating a great patient experience, that is such a prevalent theme. And that's very hard to do if you've got disgruntled employees. So finding ways to engage employees. You've got a wonderful mission because you're all about helping people and everybody loves that. Then tying it into people's jobs. So whether they're a, uh, a help desk technician or whether they're a software developer or an architect, finding ways to tie that into the patient experience, the patient care, and lending it to a deeper sense of purpose in the job they do so that they can see how they are connecting to the higher purpose, even if they are supporting some system. While not easy to do, is is pretty powerful because then they're connected to the mission of the organization. How does someone introduce happiness as a core competency for an organization if it truly is a new concept? I mean, you don't want to be the person that shows up in the boardroom, to your point, fluffiness, etc. When you say, hey, by the way, there's all of this research and there's all of these statistics that point us towards the importance of happiness in the work culture. If you work in an organization that's pretty tried and true and steadfast to historical beliefs and values, what's the best way to start to introduce the happiness component? So from a competency perspective, you know, I think there's something around that positive disposition that level of self-awareness, that level of how are you contributing to the culture that can be shaped into something. A term I love is, is called positive deviance. So how can you be that positive deviant that is challenging the status quo for the positive? And to engage those that care about the bottom line, which is all business executives, starting with the financial value of what it's costing the organization with the drain on talent, the cost of hiring somebody, the cost of the impact of the change in the organization, the, you know, a lot of new leaders when they come on board, they want to make an impact, the first thing they do is restructure because they can see a physical impact. 
But in my experience, it doesn't tend to solve the root causes and it just causes a lot of tension and turmoil for the individuals. And organizations find it very, very hard to recover from. So there has to be a different way for leaders to have an impact where everybody has the same goal. You want to drive efficiency and productivity improvements. If you can get to the hearts and minds of individuals about what that looks like in a way that they deeply care about, you're going to be way more successful than uh, a typical restructure or something that focuses more on the, the processes and things that they can't really control and only get incremental improvements. They focus much more on the extrinsic motivators and what you need is those intrinsic motivators because then people do it because they want to, not because they have to. So being a chief happiness officer, I'm sure that there's been so many times you have said that and people may look at you like, you've got to be kidding me, you know, really happiness officer, which resonates complete with me because I think about that desire to have, when it comes from within, people realize that and that's what makes you that type of leader. But it's not always unicorns and rainbows. We know that. And so in your experiences as a chief happiness officer, what kinds of things have you been faced with that have been just incredibly difficult and it's been able to give you a chance to show that it's not just showing up with a smile on your face every day. These are the real applications of why it matters when it matters most. One example I've got is often I get asked to come into organizations through employee feedback because they're struggling with a lack of clarity around promotions and career advancement. And so some organizations may have a good competency model and career framework, but for some reason, it's blocking the way employees advance. And so... A great example is using that as a way to win over hearts and minds. So what I found is if you get the different job families together in design groups and you ask them as an example, you know, what makes a great engineer in the industry? And they'll come up with the most fabulous things. And that does two things. One, it creates a common mindset of what actually is expected from an engineer. And secondly, it creates a degree of self-awareness where they might be thinking, you know, I don't know if I'm really doing that. I mean, yes, I've got the hard skills, but am I really communicating and collaborating as well as I could be from what I'm listening to? And by doing that across all the different job families, what you're doing is getting buy-in to the very foundations of how do you progress in the organization, both in terms of hard and soft skills. And then if you use the output of that in a way, now that everybody's bought in, to really drive your promotions and how you recruit. So bringing all your people managers together, bringing in a promotion case, getting them to debate, you know, given the hard and soft skills required of this job, how are they doing, hearing some really good feedback. You're then getting a sense of if someone gets promoted, is it warranted? Does everybody agree? Is there good evidence? If not, there's good feedback. And you can come out of that and tell everyone about it and it creates a degree of transparency. And that in itself creates magic because people now know how to get promoted, how to advance. If they have a gap and it's more of the soft skills, which are not as easy to solve for, um, you can give them some real practical things to go and do. For communications, they're great Toastmaster forums around the country. There's so many things you can do if you actually know what your gaps are. But unless that's clearly understood in terms of people's beliefs and have a common language around it, it just feels like it's unclear and that creates a lot of tension in the organizations, both for individuals and employees. And then you can use that on the basis of recruitment and everything else. And to me, taking the good organizational foundations and breathing life into them so that employees get it and that they worked the way they were intended creates the people foundations that HR loves, the workforce loves, that then allows you 
to create that feeling of, I want to make it a great place to work. And if you can have that with a few of your high energy individuals who have a positive disposition, who just create joy around the organization, that then inspires others until you reach a tipping point. And I've seen that in a couple places, you know, within that two-year time frame. And it's, it's, it's pretty magical when that happens because then it's beyond me or a couple of others. It actually becomes part of the organizational system. And then the organizational system actually spits out anyone who doesn't have that disposition because it's now countercultural. But it takes effort. But some of those hard tactical initiatives, just by breathing life into the desire behind them, allows you to get there pretty quickly. There will be listeners who believe that this may be the responsibility of human capital, human resources, people, services, etc. But it's not. It's a it's an organizational decision to embed this type of culture into the workplace. How important is it for each of those individual leaders within the organization to be able to really establish that happiness component? It is critical. You know, there's this phrase that the fish rust from the head. Um, leaders have such a huge impact on their organizations. And so for me, starting with foundations like this clear career framework is, is so important because most people that I've come across in the three continents I've worked in and the over 50 companies, most people don't really realize what it takes to get promoted. They believe they've done their time. Now it's my turn to be manager. And they don't really understand the true responsibilities of managers because that clarity hasn't been created. So you're a good engineer. People absolutely love you. You're great at what you do. So they make you a manager. But now your job's about getting done things done through others. And everything that made you successful as an engineer is frankly no longer relevant because you have to get things done through others, which are a whole different set of skills. But no one's taught you that. And so unless you unlearn everything that made you successful before, all you'll do is work more hours and micromanage others and be a manager that nobody really wants to work for. And so you'll drive them harder and harder and you'll get your next promotion to the executive and then the problems are expanded even further. And that's why, sadly, there are so few um, truly exceptional managers and leaders out there that people would follow anywhere. If you look behind you as a leader and there's no one following you, that's not a good situation to be in. And sadly, we find a lot of that because we haven't had the chance to have those conversations with what does it mean to be a manager and helping people with it's the mindset, not just the tools, but the mindset of what it needs. Because it's very hard to unlearn everything that made you successful as an individual contributor to learn what it takes to get things done through others. Very, very hard. You know, that, that takes a whole nother level of where do you get your value from? If your value before was engineering, what value do you get from managing others? And if you just resent the fact that you're no longer engineering, you're going to resent everything you have to do when it comes to administrative people matters. Do you see organizations being thoughtful in the technology track, especially where they say, you're a technologist, but in order for you to get to this next range, you have to become a manager. Are you seeing companies be more thoughtful about, here's the what it means to be a manager and a leader in this track, and yet, guess what? You can still be equally you know, financial, equity, et cetera, successful in this technical track as well. So there are parallel that are running so that a person doesn't have to make a choice necessarily. I love that, absolutely. You know, in the, in the technical engineering um, healthcare, science, the STEM professions, there's so many options to do that. And I think it's absolutely critical because taking your, you know, your, your best engineers and those that are deeply technical um, and whose passion is in that space and building something 
and forcing them down a management track if they want to progress um, just ends up causing a world of pain both for them and the organization. But it's the only way they can progress and, and people want to progress and, and flourish. And so having a dual track is becoming more and more common. And it's so exciting to see that. And it's such an industry recognized way of doing things right now. But in an organizational culture, it always starts with that career framework and getting people bought into the value of it and showing them the different types of paths that are out there in the industry and the types of titles. In the old days, we we had the, the architects in the technical world. Now we have our distinguished engineers. And communication is just as important on that track as it is on the management track, collaboration, because now you're influencing 5, 10, 20 teams on different patterns and practices um, as opposed to building your own team. But you've got to influence all these people to follow these good standards. It's no longer more of that command and control. It's getting people to want to do it by influence. And so explaining that and spending time with people to understand that and promoting to that and helping people move between tracks um, is incredibly freeing because they realize they can be great at what they do um, in a way that works for their career. When you create a great place to work and you become an employer of choice due to a cultural change like bringing happiness as a core competency into the workplace, how much marketing is, does it take to have that be out there or does it become more uh, word of mouth or, or spread by others? I mean, is it really a deliberate effort to then say, hey, by the way, we've created this you know, happy environment? How does an organization start to proliferate the fact that we've reached that tipping point? There's something magical here. How does that manifest itself outside of the workplace walls? You know what's terrific about it uh, in the few organizations where I've seen that done well is it just spreads like wildfire. It goes viral. You don't have to do anything. People talk to their families and their friends in the bar in the evenings about how inspired they are to go to work every day, what it feels like to have a manager that stretches and, and develops them, um, how exciting their work is. And even if they're tasks that they don't love as much, because obviously there's all sorts of things that have to be done every day, they'll do them happily because they get enough of the other things. And so in my experience, there's a huge amount of marketing need to be done. It's it's spread all over Glassdoor for you by your employees in a good way for once. <laughs> and um, people just talk about it and suddenly your pipeline of talent is huge. People just want to work there. And it's not just because you have a big brand that's meant to be cool. It's actually because you have a culture that everybody loves to be in. All those problems just disappear. And that results in huge financial savings. In all the in the fifty companies for whom you have consulted and worked really hard to get them to a place such as this, or you've watched others from from the outside, who do you think does this incredibly well, healthcare or otherwise? I would say it is the younger companies in terms of years of uh, how long they've been around. Firstly, because they haven't had the huge uh, legacy of their organization that they've had to live through. Um, those are in a high growth mode. Uh, because, you know, revenue solves all sorts of things. It also hides all sorts of things. Uh, so those companies that are you know, in the 10 to 20-year age range tend to get there faster. Um, but it all depends on the executive and the leaders in charge and whether they intuitively get it. It's not something that is a, is a manual that you have to follow. It, it is leaders either intuitively get what makes it a great place to work um, or they don't, or they're somewhere in between. But those that don't, it's usually because they're driven more by their beliefs of the era that they've grown up in and what they believe organizations should be. 
as opposed to looking at actually what's going on and is there a different way that things could be done that still drives the values that they're after. It's kind of like old dogs and new dogs, old tricks and new tricks. It's getting them just to see a different way of doing things that allows that to to pivot. Um, but I have found that even the most skeptical individuals understand the pain that their organization can be going through um, because every organization has it in some degrees, even those that are working well. And nobody intentionally wants to create a place where people don't enjoy to be. And so if they can get a glimmer of what that means from a financial perspective, they're more likely to invest in it, even in a small way. And that small way can have a huge, huge tipping point. As you share your thoughts with our listeners in closing, what are the top components of creating a program like this or a culture like this that you would want our listeners to keep in their mind as they think about bringing this forward into their own organizations? Very practically, for me, it's getting the right people on the bus. So looking at who have you hired over the last year, last couple of years, uh, are they still there? Are they top of your nine box? Are they your top performers? <clears throat> if they're not, you probably have a good area to start with. You know, th that is a great place to start. And once you've got the right people on the bus, how are you setting them up to succeed? So back to the stories we are talking about earlier, what is the experience on day one? Do they have managers that enable them to be the best they can be? So I would start very tactically at who, who and how are you recruiting and retaining individuals in terms of those over the last year? Are they your top talent? Uh, if they are and they're still there, great. What else needs to be done in terms of keeping there in the long term? Have you invested in your managers from a mindset shifting perspective so that they understand what it takes to be a great manager from a hearts and minds perspective? And then making sure everybody has really clear understanding of what's expected to make them successful in their role and what do they need as individuals? You know, last month's guests had talked about artificial intelligence and its use in healthcare for diagnosis, for helping physicians and clinicians you know, find the right answers for their patients. How do you see artificial intelligence affecting the workforce going forward? What's really interesting is that this year, artificial intelligence is going to hit the workforce in a way it's never done before in terms of the employee workforce numbers. There's going to be a huge amount of uh, impact to that base. And anything that can be boiled down to an algorithm is going to get automated. That's the hard truth. So what that means is the things that will be left will require exceptional human skills. What are exceptional human skills? Curiosity, creativity, emotional intelligence, deep, deep quantitative analysis in a way that goes beyond the algorithms and looks at the heuristics. Those are going to be the types of things that are going to be valued when everything else is automated. And when you think about kids in kindergarten, 67% of the jobs that they will do when they get to the workforce age have not yet been invented. What you need to be valuing is those exceptional human skills, teaching them how to learn, all creativity is, is asking why, connecting dots that others have not yet seen, and being able to understand how others feel and think, putting yourself in their shoes as them, not as you. Those are things that can be taught as hard as they are to teach, but we have to over-index on that because that's what's going to be valued 
so we can come up with the things that are exciting and inspiring in this new world. Vicki, thank you for taking the time with us today just to share your thoughts on organizational happiness and the positive psychology and all the components that it takes to truly recruit and retain teammates in a digital era. Are there any parting thoughts for us that you would like to share? For me, it's a given. It has to happen. And so my suggestion would be start small, uh, get a an impetus of change happening in such a way that is focused on happiness and it'll create its own momentum, but you can't afford not to. Please join us next month for another episode featuring topics in HIT today. Special thanks to Esteban Peraño, our audio and mixing engineer, for helping us to produce our podcast series.